God, we thank you for this day once again. Um, God, actually, we, we thank you that things don't always go right because it reminds us that we're not in control and that we need you. And so, God, um, we ask that you would now meet with us. We ask that you would reveal yourself to us. Uh, as we just sang a few moments ago, we need you. We need you more than anything. And our gathering together, as you promised in your word where two or three are gathered in your name, is a unique opportunity for us to commune with the presence of the living God. And so we ask that that would be what would happen in these moments. I pray that you would speak to us through your living word. I pray that you would show us what you have for us. I pray that we would not leave here unchanged because we've had an encounter with the living God. Thank you for who you are. Thank you that you have chosen to reveal yourself to us. And more than that, you have chosen to love us, though we are so unworthy of your love. You loved us so much that you sent your son to die for us. May that change the way we do all of life. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. A couple of bumps this morning, huh? Uh, one of my, the, the, the pastor of the church I went to in seminary, and he was also a professor at the school, uh, he talked one time about the worst sermon that he ever gave. And what he said at the end of that talk was basically it was a kindness of God that allowed him to fall flat on his face because it reminded him how much he needed God. And so... It doesn't bother me at all that the announcements didn't work. Uh, bothers me a little bit that I, didn't, I didn't, wasn't confident enough to say the giving liturgy without my Bible. My kids could have done it, uh, but it is what it is. Um, and it just reminds us that this is not about us, and it's not about the performance. And as, as Elder Zeke says to me all the time, we could sing a cappella psalms and just read scripture, and we'd be good because... We're here, we're here for God. We're not here for all of the other stuff. It's good, and it amps, and mics, they help. Funny stories in the sermon help, but it's not really about the funny stories. It's about God's word. It's about worshiping him. And so uh, it's been a good morning. Uh, we're, we're continuing in Mark. Uh, Mark chapter 9, uh, starting in verse 30. We're going to do the second half, the last half of Mark chapter 9. I'll give you just a minute to get there. Mark chapter 9, starting in verse 30. This is what it says. It says, They went on from there and passed through Galilee. And he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and, they, and were afraid to ask him. And they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve. And he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes be thrown into hell, where the worm, their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, 
But if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. In the uh, 1830s and 1840s, a great migration in this country began, a great migration west. I was going to go like this, but that would be if I was looking at a map, so if you were looking at a map, a great migration west. Don't pay attention to my hand signals when I'm talking about east and west. Uh, One of the reasons that that migration accelerated was as news began to come back from the west that you could travel by land all the way to California. And so in the spring of 1846, two farming brothers from Illinois, Jacob and George Donner, and their friend, James Reed, a cabinet maker, loaded their families up into nine ox-drawn wagons and headed west. They started out on the Oregon Trail. They headed out through Missouri, Kansas, Nebraska, what would be Nebraska today, following the conventional Oregon Trail. Now, if they had continued to follow the conventional Oregon Trail, as they came into southern Wyoming, modern-day Wyoming, it would have gone a little bit north into Idaho, where it would split, one trail going basically due west to Oregon, another trail veering south to take travelers into northern California. But as they got into modern-day southern Wyoming, the Donner Party left the conventional trail. They uh, and a bunch of the families that were traveling with them, 87 people in total. They did that because the prior year, in 1845, a lawyer from Ohio named Lansford Hastings, and can I just say, how much better would my preaching be if my name was Lansford Hastings? (laughs) Who's preaching this morning? Some guy named Gary. Oh, that'll be great. Who's preaching this morning? Lansford Hastings. That's going to be good. A lawyer from Ohio named Lansford Hastings wrote a book called The Emigrant's Guide to Oregon and California. In that book, he advocated taking a shortcut off of the conventional Oregon Trail. It came to be known as Hastings Cutoff. And what travelers he said should do was leave the Oregon Trail in what is modern-day southern Wyoming and head into what is modern-day northern Utah. He claimed that Hastings Cutoff would eliminate almost 300 miles from the trip west, which at the rate that those, horse, those ox-drawn wagons went could be up to a month shorter trip. So the Donners and the Reeds and the other families that were with them took Hastings Cutoff. What they found quickly was that there was not a well-worn path, and pretty quickly they came into the Wasatch Mountains of northern Utah. They had to essentially bushwhack over those mountains. Took them three weeks longer than they had expected. And as they came over the Wasatch Mountains, what spread out before them for 80 miles was the Great Salt Lake Desert, which is one of the most inhospitable places in North America. Blazing heat in the day, freezing cold at night, not a blade of grass for their animals, not a drop of water for anyone to drink, in the daytime, the sun, would, the sun would shine so hot on the salt surface of that great Salt Lake Desert, it would draw moisture up from underneath, and it would cause the surface of that desert to become a mucky, gummy mess. Some days, the wagon wheels would sink to their axles in that surface. They lost several wagons, they lost multiple animals, and they finally reached the California Trail in what is today Nevada, on the other side of that desert, two months after they had left the conventional Oregon Trail. Now, what is so amazing and devastating about Hastings' cutoff is that Lansford Hastings had never traveled it himself. He had never even seen it. He didn't even see it until a year later when he was traveling back east from California and he took it in reverse and along the way he left letters for any traveler that would come that way saying, do not come this way, turn back. He had underestimated the Salt Lake Desert by 40 miles. And as we know the rest of the story, it was devastating 
for the Donner Party. They arrived at the High Sierras too late that year. They couldn't get over what is now known as Donner Pass, and 40 of the 87 people in their group lost their lives that winter. I have uh, been to Donner State Memorial Park, which I'm sure many of us here have been, up near Lake Tahoe. I have been to Donner Pass, which is that point in the high Sierras that they attempted multiple times to get over but could not because of the snow and eventually hunkered down there for the winter. I have taken pictures in that parking lot looking out over Donner Lake. It is breathtakingly beautiful. But there is also, at least for me, kind of a somber pall that hangs over that area because of the tragedy that happened there some 170 years ago, partly because, at least for me, I find that I can identify with the Donner Party. It was just a bunch of moms and dads, aunties and uncles, cousins and friends, who were what? Trying to make a better life for themselves. Trying to, trying to, trying to make a better life for their kids. Trying to find a, a better way. Trying, they, were, they were aiming at something. They were on a journey. They had a goal. And they followed some directions, which turned out to be the wrong directions. They took directions from someone who did not know how to get where they were trying to go, and it was devastating. See, where we get our directions matters. Which directions we listen to matters. Where we get our instructions matters. Which instructions we listen to matters. And if I can try and bring this a little bit closer to home, I think most of us, if not all of us, have something in common with the Donner Party. We're all on a journey. We're all headed somewhere. A lot of us have an idea of what we hope that somewhere to look like. Look like. We're aiming at something. We have goals, dreams, visions, and aspirations. And whether we recognize it or not, we're all following a map. We're all following a playbook. We are all listening to directions. And the question I want to ask us this morning is whose directions are you listening to? Because I think for many of us, we are listening to directions that are from the world, from the culture, from our community. And I'm just telling you, that is like Hastings Cutoff. The world is giving us directions to a place it does not know how to get to. And if we follow its way until the end, we are going to end up, it, it literally it ends in death. But there is someone else, <laughs> there's someone else who knows where we're going, who has been there before, and knows exactly how to get there. And he gave us a book. This is it. And it is the guidebook to life. It is the directions for living. And so as we turn back to the text that we are looking at today, again, the question I want us to be thinking about is whose directions are we listening to? Whose directions are we following? As we look back at these four, what seem to be like almost disjointed passages that we're going to study together this morning, what I want us to see is they are actually related. Though it looks kind of like they're disjointed, uh, Mark has put them together on purpose. There are common themes, common ideas, common images that connect all of these passages together. But here's the big picture I want us to understand. What is happening in these verses that we are looking at today is that Jesus is giving us some directions. He's giving us some instructions. He's telling us, this is how to get where you want to go. And the way that he does that, and this is the word, the, the, think about this word, you'll think about it a lot because I'm going to say it a lot. This is, if I, one word to describe what we're going to see in these 20 or so verses. It is redefining. Jesus is redefining Many things, many instructions or directions that we receive from the world and from the culture, Jesus is redefining them. And we're going to look at three of them. Jesus is redefining greatness. He's redefining who's in and who's out. And he's redefining what really matters. Jesus is going to redefine greatness, who's in and who's out, and what really matters. So the first thing that Jesus is redefining in these verses is greatness. Let's look back at the text. So the first part of this passage we're looking at, Jesus gives another um, prediction. I guess it's not a prediction because it's going to come true. He talks again about uh, the fact that he is going to suffer and die uh, and that he will rise again. So verse 30, 
They went on from there and they passed through Galilee. Now, Galilee is where almost the whole first half of the Gospel of Mark has happened. Jesus has been moving in and out and about the area of Galilee. This is the last time we're going to hear about Galilee until after the Passion, until after he has died and risen again, because from here on out, he's headed one place, and that is Jerusalem. They're passing through Galilee. He tells his disciples, verse 31, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. And then verse 32, but they did not understand the saying. And it's like, at surface value, we're like, come on, like what, it's not that hard to understand. Like he said what's gonna happen. But again, we have hindsight, the benefit of hindsight. And as we've talked about for several weeks, they just could not understand the concept of a savior, a Messiah, a Christ, who would suffer and die. So Mark tells us again, verse 32, but they did not understand the saying. And then almost as if to be like, and I'll show you how much they did not understand what Jesus was talking about, he gives us the next section. So they arrive at Capernaum. This was Jesus' adopted hometown as an adult where his ministry was based out of. They're in the house. We don't know which house that is. Maybe Peter's. Uh, And it says, what were you discussing? Jesus says to them, what were you discussing on the way? So they've been traveling. They get to the house. And Jesus is like, hey, could see you guys were talking about something on the road. Seemed pretty animated. Like, what were you guys talking about back there? And he's God, so he probably already knew the answer. And I love this because it's like when you catch, you know, your children or your classroom doing something wrong. And you're like, what were you guys doing? Verse 34. But they kept silent. For on the way, they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. I love this. You know, they're kind of all standing around, looking down at their feet, elbowing each other. You answer him. Well, you started it. No, you started it. And it's like, really, guys? We're nine chapters in? And this is what you're arguing about? Which one of you is the best? You're talking about which one of you is the greatest? Like for three chapters now, Jesus has been talking about he's going to suffer, he's going to die, he's going to be mistreated. And you guys, all you can talk about is which one of you is the best. Now, culturally, we can cut them a little bit of slack because at that time, in uh, first century Judaism, order, like who was going to be closest to God in paradise, was really important. Rabbis wrote whole treatises on the order of people when they got to heaven. The, the most just, the most righteous, the most pious were said to be, have closer seats to the throne than the less just, the less pious. Um, the, the Jewish community at Qumran, which is where we get the Dead Sea Scrolls, they had whole papers talking about the order of their community, like the ranking. So we can cut them a little bit of slack, but not a ton because they still are arguing about which one of them is the best. And whatever the cultural ramifications are of that, it's still not a good look. But here's what I love and it's why, it's why I love Jesus. Because what would you or I do if we were Jesus in this moment? Like head in hands, eyes closed, shaking the head. Like, are you serious? Here we go again. And that's not what he does. It says, verse 35, he sat down and called the 12. Now that seems like it's not that big of a deal, but for the purposes of this message, it's a really big deal because that is the posture of teaching for a rabbi. Rabbis would sit down and their disciples would sit around them at their feet and that is when they would teach. So that is a clue to us. Jesus is giving some instructions. He's giving some directions. And this is what he says. If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all of all. What is he doing? Here's what I love about it. Jesus is not saying, don't try and be great. He is not saying you shouldn't be aiming high. He is simply redefining what greatness is. He is saying the world has a way of defining greatness. It is by who's first. It is by who's served. But in my kingdom, greatness is defined by who is last and who is serving. So he is not saying you shouldn't have ambitions and goals of greatness. He's saying run as hard as you can after greatness. He's simply saying the challenge is going to be if you do it my way, the whole world is going to be going one direction, aiming at greatness over there, and you're going to be fighting against the stream, aiming at greatness over there, because he turns it upside down on its head. Greatness is not winning Greatness is not being at the top. Greatness is not being served. It is being last and choosing to serve. Jesus redefines 
greatness. On September 6th, 1997, uh, there were two funerals that happened on that same day. The first was at Westminster Abbey in London. It was for Diana Spencer, Princess of Wales, who had tragically died six days prior uh, in a car accident. The other funeral that happened on the exact same day was in Calcutta, India, and it was for Mother Teresa. Two women who could not have lived more different lives. Both women loved and respected by the world, and they were actually friends in their lifetime. Princess Diana had everything that the world calls greatness. She was young, she was beautiful, she wore designer clothes, she lived in beautiful homes, she did life with a who's who of celebrities and politicians and artists. She hung out, hung out with Bono, I mean, come on. She had the life that everybody wants. Mother Teresa, by contrast, had almost nothing to her name as far as worldly possessions. She spent her life living amongst a who's who of the outcasts, the rejects, and the untouchables of our world. She had a life that nobody wants. And yet, if we go by Jesus' teaching, one of those ladies was great in God's eyes. And that's not to disparage Princess Diana in any way. I think, she, from what we can tell, she had a wonderful heart. But Mother Teresa was a, was a walking, talking, living example of what Jesus is talking about in the verses that we just studied. And here's the challenge for us. We look at those two women and we're like, I can see that's what Jesus is talking about, Mother Teresa. I'd rather have Princess Diana's life. And I think, like, we could probably just hang out here all, all the rest of the sermon. We're not going to. But um, it's really easy for us to read this passage, I think, about the disciples arguing about who's the greatest and be like, what a bunch of idiots. Well, excuse me, that's also a word we don't use in my house, so. Idiot, that word is idiot. Like, what is wrong with these guys? Seriously, like, w the pride and the hubris and to be, to be walking around, like, arguing, well, no, I think I'm closer to Jesus than you. I'm closer to God than you. Like, give me a break. We do it all the time. We, do, we argue about who is the greatest all the time. What is social media? Except that it is one long extended argument about who is the greatest. What is, um, what is Instagram? It's like just, here's, here's how awesome my life is. Don't you wish you were me? I, 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 I need to tread carefully here, but understand the spirit in which I say this. What are our Christmas cards? The letters that go with our Christmas cards. You know, Bob, was, Bob made partner twice this year. I don't know how that's possible, but they loved him so much. He was made partner once and then partner again. We went to Europe 14 times. Uh, little Johnny is having a hard time deciding between Harvard and Stanford with, what, with all his time on the Olympic team being taken up. There's no mention of the time that Johnny was arrested. There's no mention of the month that Bob spent sleeping on the couch because we're trying to argue about who's the greatest. Isn't, isn't my life awesome? Don't, don't, you wish, don't you wish you were like me? What, why do we drive the cars we drive? Is it because they're practical and affordable and get good gas mileage? Or is it because we want to show people how great we are? Why do we wear the shoes we wear? The jewelry we wear? Now, all of these things in and of themselves, not wrong. I got, I got several pairs of shoes at home that I'm afraid to wear because I don't want to end up on preachers and sneakers. <laughs> no one cares who I am, so I wouldn't anyway, but, but understand the spirit. Like, we spend a lot of time arguing about who is the greatest. And, and look, just so you know that I'm equal opportunity, uh, pastors do it too, right? How many, how many bios have you seen of a pastor and it's like, um, here's the four places I got degrees. Um, I'm the founding senior lead, senior most adult, top most teaching pastor of the church that 
started with three people in our living room and now thousands come every weekend. It's like, did you do that or did God do that? And, and here are the books I wrote and here are the conferences I've spoken at. And I'm just like, have you read this passage in, in Mark chapter nine? Now someone, I know some of you are like, you know, Gary, easy for you to say you have accomplished nothing and so you have nothing to, to put next to your name. And I'm like, I, I fully disclose that I understand that. But like, it's arguing about who's the greatest. That's not what it's about. It's not about showing the world how great we are, how we're first, how many people serve us. Jesus redefines greatness. And his definition of greatness is humbling ourselves, is thinking lowly of ourselves, is serving. That is greatness. Not being served, but served, but serving. Excuse me, not being served. You got served. (laughs) Philippians 2, verses 3 and 4. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. You know what I love about that? It doesn't say count some others. Count those who have a higher education than you, those who are richer than you, those who have more success than you, count those more significant. It says count others. Do you know who is an other to you? Everybody. Everybody is an other. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Jesus redefines greatness. He doesn't, say, he doesn't say don't run after it. He says run hard after it, but you're going to be running the opposite direction of everybody else. Jesus redefines greatness. Okay, second thing Jesus redefines. He redefines who's in and who's out. Jesus redefines who's in and who's out. So here uh, we move on. Again, now another section that feels like it's kind of disconnected, but we're going to see actually a lot of the same themes showing up here. And so Jesus is teaching them about greatness, and John pipes up, says, teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. Do you know when um, like a child or someone in class or someone on the team uh, wants to tattle on somebody else and they think they're going to get an attaboy and then they get in trouble for it? Like, hey, I stopped so-and-so from doing something they weren't supposed to do and then I'm like, you're not the parent. That's not your job. It's kind of the same thing that's happening here. A couple of things that I want us to see that just so clearly tie this back to what we just talked about. John says, teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he was not following who? Us. The disciples who cannot figure out who Jesus is, who keep messing everything up, who are arguing about who is the greatest and they're like, hey, this guy should be following us. What should he have said? Because he was not following you. Because it's not about following the disciples. It's about following Jesus. And the disciples can't get it right up to this point anyway. And then the other thing, and this is just so ironic, and just the, the pride and the hubris just comes shining through when we see this. Two passages ago, what happened? Someone brought the disciples, a young boy with an evil spirit, and they couldn't cast it out. And here they are. They come up on some guy. You know what probably happened? Probably word got out that this guy was successfully casting out evil spirits and demons. And someone was probably like, hey, guys, saw you were having some trouble casting out an evil spirit a few days ago. You should go talk to this guy because he's, he's, he's got to figure it out. He, they tell him to stop doing something they were not even able to do themselves. Because they think they're the greatest but they're missing the whole point. Jesus redefines who's in and who's out. How does he answer them? Jesus said, do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me, for the one who is not against us is for us. What is Jesus saying? Guys, the tent of my kingdom is much bigger than you realize. The tent of my kingdom is is broader and deeper and wider than your personal narrow experience of it. Matthew 7, 16 says we will know them by their fruits. And so if this guy is calling on my name and doing good works in my name, then the fruit is good. Let him keep doing it. He is saying my kingdom is broader. Just because someone doesn't look like they belong just because they don't run in your tribe, disciples, does not mean they cannot be a part of my kingdom. 
He redefines who's in and who's out. Both of my boys are playing basketball right now. Uh, one of them, on one of their teams, there's a kid who, if you just saw him off of the basketball court, you would be like, this is not a basketball player. And yet when he gets on the court, he's got handles, he's, he's swishing jump shots, he's playing lockdown defense, he, he's a baller. But he doesn't look like it. And the danger for us as followers of Jesus Christ is to look at people who we don't think look like ballers and say they are not in. Because just the way they look does not determine whether or not they are in God's kingdom. Now, listen, this is another place. There's another place that we could hang out for a long time. Uh, there is no group, well, that's, a, that's hyperbole. Uh, there are not many groups on the face of this earth who like to argue more about who is in and who is out than evangelical Christians. Now, I hate to use that term a little bit just because of how it's been hijacked, but that's what we are. We're evangelical Christians. The group that should be the kindest, gentlest, most welcoming, most gracious, and most humble group, we will, we will divide over the color of the carpet in the sanctuary. We, Jesus redefines who is in and who is out. And so what we need to humbly recognize for those of us who are followers of Jesus Christ, for those of us who have bowed our knee to his lordship in our lives, for those of us who have said, I am a sinner, I can do nothing about it, I need you, Jesus, to do it for me. For those of us who will spend eternity in his presence, we're going to spend eternity with a lot of people that we didn't think were gonna be there. We are going to spend eternity in heaven with people who believe that you should be baptized as an infant and you should be baptized as an adult. We are going to spend eternity in heaven with people who believe that only men are called to be leaders in a church and we're gonna spend eternity with women who served as leaders in churches, as elders and pastors in churches. We are going to spend eternity in heaven with Republicans, with Democrats, with independents, with liberals, with libertarians, with socialists, and with communists. We're gonna spend eternity in heaven with people who spent their lives in the Catholic Church and in, the, in a Jewish synagogue and many other religions that are not evangelical Christianity. Now, now, some of you are like, what are you talking about? I am not advocating for universalism. That is not what Jesus is teaching here. But here's the deal. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And there are people all over this earth in tribes that are not our tribe who either already have or at some point before God calls them, finishes their time here on earth, will confess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in their heart that God raised him from the dead and they will be saved. We are all gonna spend eternity together with a bunch of sinners because that is what we are. And if, if anything, that should make us the humblest, kindest, most gracious and welcoming people on earth because if God could do it for us, he can do it for anybody. Jesus redefines who is in and who is out. So he redefines greatness. He redefines who's in and who's out. And then finally, he redefines what really matters. Jesus redefines what really matters. Now these last verses, verses 42 to 50, lot, 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 lot going on here. Uh, we could spend a lot of time here that we don't have. So here's what I want you to try and grasp, which I think is the big idea of these verses. Jesus is saying, do not overvalue the things that are not important and undervalue the things that are of eternal importance. So he, he transitions from this talking about, uh, you know, whoever's not against us is for us, and he begins to talk, talk about sin and temptation. He says, if, if any of you were to cause someone else to sin, Better that you take a millstone that is like the huge stone that they would have donkeys use to grind grain. You would take animals to, 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 to uh, make it turn. Jesus is saying better to have one of those hung around your neck and jump into the ocean. And then verses 43 through 48, he says some stuff that is familiar to us. Matthew talks about the same ideas, or Jesus talks about the same ideas in Matthew's recording of his Sermon on the Mount. And he says some really hard stuff. He says, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. 
Now, what we need to say very, very emphatically in this moment is he is not being literal. Jesus is not talking literally here. He is not saying that this is what you should do. But I think the fact that he is talking in hyperbole almost makes it more emphatic. Jesus is saying, you got a bunch of stuff in your life, like your hand, like your foot, like your eye, that feels like your life. It feels like you get life from these things. And he's saying, that's not where you find life. And do not overvalue the things that do not actually give you life and then undervalue the place that you actually find life. Look at what he says. Verse 43, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to what? Enter life crippled than with two hands going to hell. Verse 45, and if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to what? Enter life lame than with two feet be thrown into hell. Isn't it interesting that he didn't say enter heaven? He could have said that. He says enter life. And then I think we get a clue in verse 47. If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter what? Not life, the kingdom of God. So it's life, life, and then the kingdom of God. What's he saying? I, I think he's saying life and the kingdom of God go together. It is more important. You will find your life in me and in my kingdom, not in your hands or your feet or your eyes. And anything, anything that is preventing you from getting to me, from getting to my kingdom, from getting to life, don't keep it. Don't hang on to it because it's not worth it. I think it was three weeks ago now. Uh, I told the story of Aaron Ralston, who was the hiker in Utah who fell into a ravine, a canyon, got his arm caught between an 800-pound boulder and the wall of the canyon. Five days and five nights stuck there in the canyon with his arm pinned between an 800-pound boulder and the wall of the canyon. And this has not happened often in my uh, young preaching career. But I had a moment this week where I was like, man, I really wish I had read a few passages ahead before I burned that illustration three weeks ago because it is so perfect for this moment. And so what I'm gonna do is what any good pastor would do, I'm just gonna reuse it. The guy cut off his own hand because it was the only way for him to keep his life. And again, this is not literal. Please, 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 a thousand times please, but do not miss the picture that Jesus is saying, there are things that seem important to you But in light of eternity, they do not give you life. Do not overvalue the things that do not matter and undervalue the things that really do. We think the things we do with our hands gives us life. We think the places we go with our feet gives us life. We think the things that we see with our eyes gives us life, but that is not where we find life. We find it in Jesus Christ and in his kingdom. So here it is. If your iPhone causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. If your TV, if Netflix causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. If your car or your house causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. If your job causes you to sin, cut it off. If you have a friend who causes you to sin, not literally, but maybe relationally, it's time to cut something off. If your anger causes you to sin, If your bitterness, if your hurt, if your fear, if your anxiety, Jesus is saying, cut them off. Because those things that you think you find life in cannot give you life. They are not what really matter. Me, my kingdom, that is where you find life. That is what really matters. Jesus redefines what really matters. So let's just just circle back to where we started. Whose directions are you following? Whose whose directions are you leaning into? Whose instructions are you following? The way of the world, the way of our culture, it is a Hastings cutoff. It is trying to take you someplace it cannot tell you how to go. And in the end, it will only lead to death. But we have another set of instructions. They come from Jesus Christ. And if anybody knows what he is talking about when it comes to being great, it is him. He is the firstborn of all creation. He is the image of the invisible God. He is preeminent above all. He is the greatest of all time. He is the goat. He knows what it takes to be great, and he has told us what it takes to be great. 
And this is what it is. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Where was Jesus' greatness found? In his divinity? Absolutely. But also in his humility. We have to go low in order to get high. Jesus redefines greatness. Let's pray. God, we thank you once again that you have given us this book that we call the Bible, that we do not believe is just um, a collection of old words printed on a page, but we believe it is the actual words of the living God. We believe, God, that we find in that book, we find our life because we find you in it. And so, God, I pray for all of us as we leave uh, this place today that you would do a work in our hearts that we might reprioritize, that you might, we can't do it ourselves, that you might reorder our loves so that our disordered loves become correct and that we value you, your kingdom, above anything else. We can't do it on our own, God. We can only do it in your power and with your help. We ask that you would continue to conform us to the image of your son. Help us to live lives radically abandoned to your call and your purpose. May we build your kingdom here on earth, not ours. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. We are now, before we go to our song of worship, uh, we're going to have a, a special update from the elder board. So I want to invite Arche- Elder Arshel up. Uh, he is going to give us an update on what is going on uh, building-wise and with the church. And then after that, we'll finish with our song of response. Good morning. Oh, you clap. This is a continuation of worship today. It was a powerful message. I'm still soaking it all in. We, I'm so grateful for this church. Uh, our motto is to know Jesus and to make him known. And I'm grateful for Pastor Gary, a humble servant of God, who helps us with that to know Jesus. He is, a, he is, he is really who he really is. He's a humble man. I'm really grateful to serve alongside with him. Today I have some update for you. So on behalf of the elders, um, I want to give you an update on the legal matters that we talked about some time ago uh, between ALCF and Vive, uh, several months ago. And then I want to give you an update moving forward. So the news is that we have reached a settlement uh, with Vive, and we are going to move out this building earlier than planned. We will uh, end our time here at March end of this year, 2022. May, I'm sorry, May, sorry, thank you. May uh, of this year, 2022. Uh, This will allow us to have a substantial amount of savings given the time frame of, uh, if we look at March of 2023 that we plan to move so. Um, That is the blessing and uh, the blessing to be able to steward God's finances in this church. We've been here some 18 years, saints. Many of you have been here 18 years. And it's been a blessing to be in this building, but also we realize that we don't want to stay somewhere where we know that it's costing us a lot of money, so moving forward is a blessing as well. So I want you to remember that it's a blessing to move forward. Amen. So where are we going? That's the question you would have. Uh, We are planning for a new location. Um, Probably this will happen in two steps. Uh, The first one will be a temporary space. Uh, that will last for about a year. And then simultaneously, while that is taking place, we're looking for a more permanent home. Yes, we will maintain live streaming during this transition. 
So I know you also may want to know, how will we end this time here at this church? Well, so for some of you may know, this, this church has been around 40 years. 40 years. And uh, so we have a lot to celebrate. But it's not just those 40 years. It's the 40 years of maybe your tenure of one week, two years, 10 years, or 20 years, wherever time you have in this building. We're going to celebrate how God has blessed us over the years. We have so many memories. I cannot count them. Um, we look forward to the many continued blessings that he has for us. But the most important blessing is you. It's you. You are the blessing. On behalf of the elders of this church, we can't thank you enough for each one of you. During this season and the seasons, these are the words that come to my memory. Your steadiness and your love. Love and action, indeed, for Christ. Your financial support. Whatever season we were in, you were faithful. Your prayers. And all the saints who are in this church who have prayed, thank you so much. You have moved mountains. Staying connected with one another in your groups, in your prayer groups, and doing the Lord's work. That is essential to the church. This is a building. It's a beautiful building. I've had the privilege of being in this building from day one when we walked into it. It was an ugly, ugly building. They turn into a beautiful edifice. But what I love more is seeing each one of you. What I love more is seeing you grow and using the gifts that God has placed upon you. So I want to encourage you. This is encouraging. We have a lot to be prayerful and grateful for. Let's stand. Prayerful and grateful for. Because he's been so good to us. And so... I want to say, let's stay a strong, blessed, and grateful community of believers. And let's continue to make him known, to know him, and to make him known. Amen? Amen. Now, I think I've answered all your questions, but I'm going to say it one more time. End of May, we move out the building. We're going to have a celebration. Details of that celebration will come forward later on. We have a lot to be grateful for. Let's celebrate abundant life. You're blessed. Amen. God bless you, Pastor. Uh, as the worship team comes up now, uh, I know that may have felt like what like harsh transition sermon to announcement, but we really wanted to give that announcement before we worshiped because we just want to respond in worship. Um, we talked about this on our staff meeting this week, and um, some of you know Mother Hill. She uh, leads our prayer ministry here at this church, and she had the last word, and she is the elder stateswoman in this church. And I just want to share with you, uh, paraphrasing what she said, moving is hard, moving stinks. I don't care if you're moving your office down the hall or you're moving your house across the country, moving is hard. I do not want the sense in our body to be like, this is sad. It, we, we, this has been an amazing place. And, and God has done amazing things here. And we are going to celebrate not this building. We're going to celebrate what God has done in this building. But hear me, and this is what Mom Hill said. This is exciting. God is at work. And he has gone before us. And he has a plan and a purpose for this church. And we are going to get to see him work in ways we would have never seen had we not been, had the opportunity to follow him into a great new adventure. So I don't want the sense in this place to be sadness. We can be sad about the ending of a, a time in a building, but I want us to be excited. Uh, be excited that God is with us and that he is taking us forward into a new season. And he's gonna do things that we wouldn't believe if we were told. So let's rejoice, let's praise him, and let's finish this service by worshiping God. Hallelujah.
up uh, if you have friends who weren't here this week or we, I know we had people serving in kids ministry uh, our shell's gonna make the same announcement next week just so we make sure that everyone gets it so we'll we'll make that announcement again next week uh, please receive the benediction the Lord bless you and keep you the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace until we meet again or until our Savior comes and then forever amen You're loved, you're prayed for, and you're sent.